Does the Apostle Paul really want to die? I'm Lance Leffler, and we'll look at this question today on God Meets the Grind. What's the most scared you've ever been? One of these days I'll tell you about how scared we were when the murderers broke out of the prison near our house. But have you noticed that when people tell you about when they were most scared, they always say, I thought I was going to die. It's never, oh man, I thought I was going to sustain a noteworthy injury. No, it's always, I thought I was going to die. Why? Probably because dying is our biggest phobia after public speaking. So Paul the Apostle to the rescue Here's the very strange thing he says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. But let's just look at verses 18 through 20 first. Oh, and we're starting with just the last couple words of verse 18, not the whole verse. I think they put the verse break in a weird spot there. Here's what Paul says. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's review Paul's situation. He's in prison in Rome. He was basically on house arrest, guarded in shifts by soldiers from the Praetorian Guard. He was awaiting a hearing before the emperor of Rome, There wasn't a super high chance of his being condemned to death from that hearing, but still, he is going to face Nero, who happened to be a lewd, unscrupulous, murderous lunatic, but in fairness, mostly just towards his own family and friends at this stage of his career. Live or die, Paul's focus is on honoring Christ. Now, in the next few verses, Paul turns a corner that nobody sees coming. He says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith." So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I've never met a healthy, happy person who preferred to die. The people I've known who wanted to die were either terminally ill, suffering chronic pain, or suffering from depression. None of these things was true of Paul. But he says straight up in verse 21, to die is gain. He starts with, to live is Christ. As long as Paul is alive... His life is all about Christ, but to die is gain. Then in verse 23, he says that his desire is to depart, that is, die, because that is far better. Contrast that with Hamlet's famous soliloquy, to be or not to be. Hamlet muses about the pain of life, but the unknown that awaits after death. He asks, what makes us grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, which he calls the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. He says this dread of something after death puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. What separated Paul and Hamlet or Shakespeare 
and us for that matter, Paul knew something that Shakespeare could only contemplate darkly. I would argue that Paul had touched something of the reality of Jesus that few people ever have. In this life, we deal with sin and violence, fractured relationships, hatred, pride, backstabbing, greed, sickness, deterioration, and death. Did I miss anything? And this veil of dimmed perception that keeps us apart from the visible, glorious, holy presence of our Maker. In death, the veil is lifted like a theater curtain, and the glory of the Holy One lights a new world, liberated from the tears and pain and brokenness. In Revelation chapter 21, John the Apostle sees a luminous vision of heaven, the eternal state. And in that vision, God is making his dwelling place among us. And a voice from the throne of God says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning or pain of any kind, because God will make all things new. I often wonder... When I think about how Paul met Jesus, being stopped in his tracks by him on his way to having more Christians put to death, that's what Paul was up to before he became a Christian, I often wonder just how much God revealed to him on that day. He had touched more than just the edges of God's ways, that's for sure. And then he tried to write about it to us poor saps. How much we need to hear from someone like Paul. I will contest that when Paul says he'd rather quote-unquote, depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. As odd as it strikes our ears, this should inform our entire life. If we really believed that heaven was better, and if we really grasped just how short this flash-in-the-pan life is, don't you think our desires would be different? So, I think we should set it as a goal to be able to say, honestly, that heaven is better. This doesn't mean that we should seek to die. Don't misunderstand what Paul's doing. He's using a literary flourish to remind us that heaven is better, not to endorse suicidal thoughts or in any way to diminish the value of life here and now. We'll see in a minute that Paul knew it was best to continue on, to help others. Okay, all of this has been sort of an intro. I think the main point in this section is verse 20, where Paul says that whether he lives or dies, Christ will be honored in his body. Let's talk about that word honored for a second. This isn't a big deal, but as much as I love the English Standard Version of the Bible, the ESV, I really don't like that word choice. As you know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the ESV is a really great version. And who am I to take issue with how some really great Bible scholars translated the Bible into English? Nobody. I mean, I read the Greek New Testament at like a first grade level. I have like a Greek picture Bible with a giraffe bookmark. But this really isn't about the Greek, it's about the English. Here, track with me for a second. It's going to be worth it, I promise. The Greek word here is megaluna, and it has a range of meanings such as honor, exalt, extol, magnify, and the ESV chose honor. Listen to those other options again. Exalt, extol, magnify. These words pulse with energy. I especially like magnify. The word honor is so flat and bland compared to magnify. Here's an interesting aside. The ESV translates megaluna as magnify and extol in other places, the most famous of which is Mary's prayer or song in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. When she is told that she will be the mother of the Messiah, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. 
And just another interesting aside, most English versions translate the word as exalt or magnify here in our verse in Philippians 3.20. It's a small thing, and you may not care much about it, but I love words. And Christ will be magnified in my body, sparks my imagination, magnify, to be seen as bigger, greater. God intends to use our lives to make himself appear bigger and greater than people's puny understanding of him. We are magnifying glasses, saying, look here, look what God is like, look, look how great he is. I know what you're thinking. Who's up to that task, Lance? To be a magnifying glass for God? Fair question. Listen close, because this is so subtle, I missed it for years. God uses ordinary people living ordinary lives to make an extraordinary impact for his kingdom. That means, I think, that most of the time God is not magnifying himself through some amazing event, like an evangelist or preacher with millions watching on TV or 50,000 people stuffed into a baseball stadium. Nothing wrong with those things. But I would argue that God is magnified in the everyday lives of ordinary people like you and me, cooking dinner, doing the dishes, cleaning someone's home who is sick, teaching a kid's class, coaching Little League, not being argumentative, swearing off road rage, allowing yourself to be wronged, all for God's glory. Remember, we're dirt made from the dust of the ground. It makes sense that our glorification of our glorious creator would arise from the mundane, the unremarkable. Paul said to the Corinthian church, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. This lays the groundwork for a theology of what I would call the glorious ordinary. That everything we do and say is an opportunity to magnify God. And that therefore, everything we do is not ordinary. So Paul, as much as he would rather exit to heaven, recognizes how much he's needed here. And so he knows he will continue on for your progress and joy in the faith. As you progress in your faith, don't forget the joy. For Paul to include it here shows the centrality of joy to the Christian life. It makes sense, doesn't it? that a relationship with our most gracious creator and redeemer would bring us joy? Paul continues this theme in the next section of Philippians. In our next episode, we'll look at how God has granted to us to suffer. You won't want to miss it. Or maybe you will. Ah, just join me next time on God Leads the Ground. 